previously on Unbillable Boston. After Harry was exonerated, I sued the Fall River Police and the city um, and um, a federal court case and got a settlement. A very, very handsome settlement. And I said, Harry, how about this? Why don't you take a bus to Boston? I'll put you up in a Marriott Hotel uh, downtown on the waterfront. It'll be on me that you're in the hotel. I'll pay for it. I'll cover everything, your meals. He says, great. So uh, it's about 5.30 in the afternoon. I get a call from Harry. I think he's had a couple of pops. <laughs> he says, Jay, I'm at the hotel. I wonder if you can do me a favor. I said, sure, Harry. What? I wonder if you, I can borrow some money. Okay, uh, how much? He said, hold on. How much? <laughs> and you hear a woman's voice in the background says, $150. And I go, Harry? He says, Jay, please, just $150. I said, okay, no one finds out about this. And I go to my secretary and I said, do we have any blank envelopes without my name on it? <laughs> And that was our chat last week with Jay Carney, the prominent criminal defense attorney who represents James Whitey Bulger. What you'll hear today on this edition of Unbillable Boston is more from Jay. And this is more than compelling because Jay shares with us some things about his conversations with Whitey that you've never heard before, that no one quite possibly has heard before. Jay was very honest with us, very candid, and told us some revealing things that were both humorous and really insightful when it came to the legendary figure and the convicted gangster, James Whitey Bulger. So you're really going to enjoy this. As usual on Unbillable Boston, I'm David Yaz from Morgan Stanley. I'm joined by Max Perlman and Sarah Worley. Check out our past episodes at unbillableboston.com or at Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. That's masslawyersweekly.com. And we're very grateful to Lawyers Weekly for hosting our podcast. Finally, if you haven't heard the podcast before, just by way of explanation, what we look at is a behind-the-scenes take on things going on in this city, in the worlds of business, law, media, politics, philanthropy, what have you. We talk to interesting people. Jay Carney is no exception. You really dig this one. So check it out. Enjoy the show. This one's for you, Boston. Boston's a different city than it was 20 years ago. The hope rises again, and the dream lives on. Larry Bird's not walking through that door, fans. The world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever and to cheer even louder. This is our f***ing city. Hello? Hi, Mr. Belger's on the phone. All right, please put him through. Sure. Thanks for calling. Uh, there are a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. Sure. The first is that you've told me since the very first day I met you that you've never been an informant. That's correct. Does that mean you've never been an informant in your entire life? Never. As a teenager, I took many a beating at the police stations, and I never cracked. As a bank robber, I was captured. I pled guilty to free the girlfriend that I was with, and I got a 20-year prison sentence, first offender. In prison, I was part of an escape plot. The plot fell apart. One of the guys gave my name. 
I told him, I don't know what you're talking about. I spent months in the hole, naked and the whole thing. I went through a lot there. And after four months for punishment, they sent me to Alcatraz. And that was it. I never, never, never cracked. In the Boston FBI, no way. I met John Connolly, who was a salty guy, Irish Catholic like myself. You know, it's friendship. Jeez, if I ever hear anything, I'll tip you off, uh, give you a heads up. And then I told, all right, John. I says, I'll see you. You can let me know. I appreciate it. And that's how it got started. This isn't really a typical criminal trial. James Bulger knows that by following the strategy he has directed us to do, he will be found guilty. And he's going to die behind the walls of a prison. But for Jim, it doesn't matter. He's at the end of his life. He doesn't know if he'll live till the end of the trial, never mind till the end of the year. But for him, it's like it's his last opportunity to tell people that he was never an informant, that our federal government is more corrupt in law enforcement than anyone ever imagined, even to this day in this trial. It's corrupt. And he wants people to know it. So, Jay, we're back here with Jay Carney on Unbillable Boston and just listening to that clip. So, Jay, that is a that is a clip from a CNN documentary, which, by the way, available on Netflix. I just watched it the other day. And um, you were just mentioning to me as we were listening to it something about the production of that documentary and the, and the way it was put together. But go ahead, share with me what you, what you said. The federal government is frightened to allow Jim Bulger to tell the truth about what happened. He was uh, the head of organized crime in Boston for 25 years. Uh, the federal government uh, in the uh, Department of Justice and U.S. Attorney are charged with uh, prosecuting him for that role. And during 25 years, he never got so much as a parking ticket. Mm. And um, they're terrified that he would give his side of explaining how that happened. He was never an informant. He had everybody on his payroll uh, who was with the FBI, the DEA, um, Customs, State Police, local police, and he had an arrangement with the uh, chief of the organized crime strike force. Um, but the true reflection of that was not just that the federal government did everything to prevent Bulger from being able to testify at trial about the truth. They would not even let any person from the media interview him. Mm. Uh, certainly not on tape, on camera, or uh, audio. And um, so one day um, I was speaking to the director of the documentary and he said, is there any way that I can you know, get anything from Jim? And I said, sure. I'll speak to Jim about having him call me one day. And, um, um, and if Jim's okay with it, you can record the conversation and film me talking to him. And that way, you'll be the only media that has Jim Bulger talking about uh, important issues in the case. So I went to see Jim at the jail, and I broached this plan to him. And he said, wow, yeah, sure. You think I should do it? I said, it's up to you, like all big decisions. And he said, I'll do it. So I went back to the uh, producer, and I said, okay, what questions do you want to ask him? He gave me the 85 questions that he wanted to ask Bulger, and I said, look, Realistically, we're not going to have more than 20 minutes. So um, give me the top 10. 
And uh, so I took the top 10. I went down to Jim. I gave them to him. I said, now, Jim, you're only going to have 60 seconds to answer each of these questions. He said, got it. I said, you're going to need to practice. He said, I will. And so I gave him the 10 questions that I had distilled it down to with the producer. And Jim said, I'll work on it. Next time I go to see him, he's like a kid getting ready to do a um, presentation in front of a high school class. He said, I've really been working on it, Jay. I'm very close to 60, minutes, 60 <laughs> seconds for every answer. I said, Jim, that's terrific. And he said, do you want to hear some of them? And I said, sure. And I'm looking at my watch. I'm timing them. And he's mm -hmm. coming out about 55 seconds, maybe 70 seconds. And uh, he was really taking it seriously. So this when we, we did the clip, he's pretty good. He's <laughs> under 60 seconds, just like I asked him. This, you're one of the most accomplished criminal defense lawyers in the, the country, I would suggest. And here you are uh, giving some uh, media training 101 to a guy who is known as one of the most uh, notorious criminals in the state. You probably didn't see that coming when you were in law school. Um, I didn't. I, um, when I was 14 years old um, in high school, I had a teacher who um, asked every member of the class to do an essay about what they wanted to do when they uh, grew up. What would be their career? Well, this was in the 60s. So the boys uh, would write, I want to be an airline pilot, or I want to be a major league baseball player. The girls, uh, this was about four or five years before feminism hit, they would write, I want to be a stewardess, or I want to be married to a major league baseball player. Well, this teacher uh, was in an airport once watching CNN, and I happened to be on, and he said, hey, that's one of my former students. He pulled my essay. At 14 years old, I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. That's great. In fact, I, I put that's the story great. in there, <coughs> excuse me, that um, I wanted uh, to have a very rich person come to see me and say, I want to hire you. Yeah, that and I would say to him, do you have any money? I have got, I'm a multimillionaire. I can pay any fee. Well, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to be your lawyer. I'm a public defender. And I look back and I go, boy, that was naive. <laughs> and I've certainly, I've certainly changed my view now on, on whether I should represent that type of client. Thank goodness. Uh, those yes. of you who are listening, uh, I, I do take those clients now who are multimillionaires. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. I look back and uh, my naivete um, combined with my sincere belief that that is really what I was meant to do. Mm. Um, it allows me to say now, I have lived my dream far beyond anything I would ever have expected. Um, I was in two different courts today fighting like heck on behalf of clients. That's what I want to do. I was at the office till 10 p.m. last night. We know you were ready. fighting today because you were late showing up. Thanks a lot. But for a good, yeah. very good reason. Um, but... So let's go back to Bulger. Well, judge, one of the judges said, so Mr. Carney, you've scheduled this for today. We're supposed to drop everything before mm -hmm. you want it. And I told him, Your Honor, I admit it can be judicially noticed that I'm a diva. <laughs> but I scheduled it for 2 o'clock mm -hmm. so that everybody else whose cases were scheduled today could have their cases heard before me. Mm -hmm. So... I don't think it's fair for you to say that I'm trying to cut in line. 
<laughs> so you always have a wonderful way of doing that. And you'll pardon me if I giggle when you're quoted on camera going over the top, commending the, the judge for how intelligent and reasonable and, and uh, uh, you know, particularly shrewd they were in a particular decision, because I've heard you say that many times. Well, you know, when I drop a piece of bread, uh, buttered toast on the floor, right. it, uh, it lands butter up. Always, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, t- so take us, take us back. The, uh, time does not permit us to cover everything that we could ask you about the Bulger case, but take us back to the, the first day when you were representing him. Tell us what, would that, tell us what that was like. Here's the process that was followed. And to this day, I don't know why I was selected. Um, a lawyer in Boston was designated to call around to criminal defense lawyers whom the court may have thought were qualified to handle a case like this and ask us, um, would you be available to take the case? Do you have an interest? Do you, are you conflicted out or what? And I said I'd have to call back the next day because mm-hmm. I wanted to speak to my family first. And uh, asked my wife, uh, she rolled her eyes up, and uh, uh, that's her universal symbol for, okay. Here we go again. Yeah. Uh, I asked uh, my son. He said, whatever. That's his sign of approval. And I asked my daughter. She said, that's great, Dad. Then you can write a book <laughs> and uh, make money. And, and I said, yes, and we'll, I'll entitle the book, How I Bought a Cape House. She said, perfect, Dad. Um, and so this is, a, to be clear, this is, for those that don't know, this is a court-appointed... Yes, court-appointed. Okay. And so does that mean, the not to boil it down so far, but does that mean the rate is, is fixed, or do you set the rate or for, for the defendant to pay you? Or? Um, well, to handle uh, Bulger, um, the court-appointed rate was 15% of my normal hourly rate. Is that right? Okay. And I remember... Um, talking to someone uh, about this because the person said, uh, boy, this this must be a really great lucrative case or yeah. something like that. And I said, well, you know, you look around in the courtroom, the uh, prosecutors are getting paid their normal salary. So is the judge. The probation officer is. The clerk is getting paid. All the experts are getting paid their money. The uh, um, uh, federal agents who are testifying, they're getting all their money. And the only people who aren't getting paid their money are the criminal defense lawyers were getting paid 15%, or at least I was, what the normal hourly rate is. And so the idea that um, lawyers don't make a sacrifice to take court-appointed cases is false. There are hundreds, indeed thousands of lawyers in Massachusetts who accept court appointments in criminal cases and get a fraction of what they would make from their private clients. But like my colleagues who do this, we do it voluntarily. We believe that it's important as criminal defense lawyers to represent indigent clients and very often pro bono clients. We became criminal defense lawyers because we want to help these people in a jam and we pay a financial price very often for it. So on the, on the CNN documentary, there's a clip at one point that shows the, the most wanted by the FBI and, and this is going back a few years. but and number one was Osama bin Laden, and number two was James Whitey Bulger. So you sat with Whitey Bulger for hours and hours. You got to spend time with him, one of the most notorious uh, you know, accused criminals in, in the history of this country, perhaps. So tell us what he was like. Well, um, I spent a lot of time in South Boston uh, because 
I lived nearby uh, with my wife, and uh, when we had kids, I'd go to Castle Island um, every Sunday and stroll around with the kids, play with them in the playground, and I realized that uh, Jim Bulger was walking around there at the same time, although I didn't know him. I knew his two brothers. Mm. Uh, when I was appointed to represent him, was the very first time I ever met him. And I remember when I walked into the courtroom um, to accept the appointment um, and looked at him, I realized that without my glasses, I actually looked kind of just like him. <laughs> His booking so, photo, at least. And, uh, you know, so I'm, for I'm our listening audience, Jay yeah. just took off his, his lawyerly glasses. His and, glasses. And yeah. there is a little bit of a resemblance. And so I'm standing there having just met him. Is that a white Red Sox hat on? Yeah. yeah, yeah. With I, shook his, I shook his hand and I said, I'm Jay Carney. I'm very uh, pleased to represent you on this case. And the first thought that popped in my mind is, holy mackerel. I hope he doesn't tie me up sometime at a visit in the prison and make me trade clothes and walk out of the prison wearing my suit and my glasses and they, they come in later and they find me tied up in an orange jumpsuit. This is, I said, this focus, is the plot focus. of a, of a okay. Jerry Bruckenheimer movie. I think. Honest yeah. to God, focus, yeah. just right. focus. Yeah. And uh, I remember when I left the courtroom, uh, you know, 25 uh, cameras out front and I'm trying to act with great gravitas. I said, Connie, how... Uh, What's it like to have the biggest case you'll have in your entire career? My career is not over. Okay, uh, and then what about uh, how are you going to approach this case? Like I do every single case. I'll find out where the truth lies and I'll present it to a jury. You know, and then, then I leave and I'm driving down to see Bulger. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit of an excitable boy at this point. I get pulled over by the state police. Trooper comes up and says, In a hurry, Mr. Canny? I, he recognized you right away. Um, well, yeah. I may not know every, I may not <laughs> you know, know every cop that. in Massachusetts, but every cop and trooper knows me. And, <laughs> right. um, just by virtue of we're in the same business and I'm just sure. on TV more than them. Right. And, uh, the trooper said, you know, in a hurry. And I told him, I've just been uh, appointed to represent Whitey Bulger. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. I've just been appointed to represent Whitey Bulger. I'm going to see Whitey Bulger. I'm going to be his lawyer. He goes, uh, Mr. Carney, you have more problems than a speeding ticket. And he let me go. And, uh, I'm going to try that next time well, I get pulled over. Yeah, yeah but, no. Um, you can only use it once, though. I, did, I, I spent hundreds of hours sitting talking to Jim Bulger. And um, he was a very fascinating guy. Uh, he was extremely intelligent, uh, like his younger brother's. As people know, mm -hmm. know them better, perhaps. Uh, he was very well read, particularly in biographies and uh, history. Um, he could be a great Irish storyteller, um, although sometimes his stories ended with a bang. <laughs> uh, oh, he could be very loving. I've heard, yes. He'd be very loving mm -hmm. toward uh, his girlfriend, Catherine. And, um, no, he, so he would, tell, he would tell you stories about misdeeds of his past I know I remember sitting with him and uh, I had the uh, indictment mm -hmm. and I'm going down the list of murders you know to start and I asked him about the first uh, the first murder is of this guy uh, and he said you know if you took a poll in South Boston <laughs> they'd be in favor of killing that POS 
And so I write down, okay, uh, defense, uh, public service. <laughs> then um, the, uh, I ask him about the second one. And he said, well, technically I didn't kill him. And I said, oh, how was that? He said, well, Jim, Stevie Fleming and I went to kill him. And then I reached into my pocket, but I was wearing new pants and my gun got caught in the pocket. And uh, Stevie said, oh, for crying out loud, took out his gun and killed a guy. So had I got the gun out, I would have been able to kill him. So, um, okay, yeah, so that was me. Yeah. Well. And I write down, uh, gun in pocket. Uh, did he really not want to pull it out? Okay, get to the third one, he starts laughing. <laughs> And, I, and he says, when you hear this story, I go into the bar. <laughs> oh I call the guy out. He's, he says, what do you want to tell me, Whitey? I want to tell you this. You are dead. Bow. Oh One to the head. <laughs> you should have seen the look on his face. I'm going, okay, come back to this one for the defense. Then I ask him about the fourth one. And, he, you know, he says, I didn't know about that one until four days after the guy was dead. Hmm. I had nothing to do with that one. Okay. So, so, you know, he was remarkably candid as a client. And, um, you know, didn't hold back. He was, uh, I mean, w what his view was is he had the greatest run of an organized crime figure in Boston who had ever, ever been in existence. 25 years. I mean, he made millions and millions of dollars every year. And then um, when he finally was indicted, he went on vacation for 16 years with his girlfriend mm -hmm. and lived a pretty good life in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. He expected he would die in a hail of bullets or on a gurney being injected with um, death penalty drugs sure. or, at the best, die in prison. Yeah. And by the time he got caught, um, he had lived a good life in his view. Mm -hmm. Well. We're going to have to wrap up, Jay. I think we're going to have to have him back, guys. Yeah, I think. Absolutely. I mean, um, just, I guess as a final thought, um, in listening to that clip from the CNN piece and how the whole trial went, I remember being in um, trial ad in, in law school, and they said it's all about the story of the, the, the theory of the case or your story that you want to tell for the case. And it seemed to me, you correct me if I'm wrong, I want to hear what you have to say, of course, but th that the story was he did a lot of bad things, but he was never an informant. And that seemed to be the message that, you know, procedure be damned, the message that came out of that trial. And you're sitting here, so I, I, maybe I'm patting you on the back, but it seemed like your message was consistent, and that, in fact, was the result of the trial. Is that? Am I interpreting that correctly? You are. Um but that wasn't supposed to be the message. Uh, the message of the trial was supposed to be to reveal to people the corruption in the federal government that allowed Bulger to be on top for 25 years um, with never being charged with anything. Mm. And what was interesting is we were fighting to allow the deal Bulger made with the head of organized crime, the attorney in the, in the uh, Department of Justice, um, that would permit Bulger to continue operating as he did and not be charged federally. Right. Uh, the person made it clear that he could be charged in state court where more than 99% of murders are prosecuted, but as long as he kept up his end of the bargain, then for what he was going to do, um, he would not be prosecuted federally. I remember that um, 
I was planning um, in closing argument to have a chat and say, okay, I've called the person who was the head of the criminal bureau in the first half of the 80s, who is now a federal judge, and the person who was the head of the criminal bureau in the second half of the 80s, who at the time of the trial was the head of the FBI, and a person who was the U.S. attorney for a good part of the 80s, who later became a Massachusetts governor. And I'd have my chat in front of the jury, and I'd say, okay, what are the reasons why Bulger was not prosecuted by these men? Number one, they're incompetent. Well, I'd draw a red line through that and say these are three of the most accomplished men in Massachusetts legal history. Number two, they were paid off. Absolutely not. These are men of unimpeachable integrity. They wouldn't take a nickel any more than they would take $5 million. So I draw a red line through that. Next, they didn't know Bulger was head of organized crime in Boston. Well, I would have presented 400 books, articles, documentaries, newspapers, stories about usually the Bulger brothers. One is the uh, Senate president, the other one is head of organized crime. So obviously, it's not that they didn't know he was that, and I'd draw a red line through that. And then I'd say, Sherlock Holmes would say, when the probable is impossible, then you look to the improbable. And the fourth reason was they respected the deal that the head of the organized crime strike force had made with Bulger. And that would have been the heart of the case. Mm. I wouldn't be trying to convince 12 people. I'd be trying to convince one person. Mm -hmm. Because if one person said that he had a reasonable doubt, or she had a reasonable doubt, about whether the government made this deal with him, then they would not get a conviction. And that would have been the only time Jim Bulger ever would be put to trial. Well, listen, Jay, we thank you for being so candid and filling in a lot of the gaps because I learned a lot about this case that I had never heard before. And uh, Jay, listen, you're a friend. We want to have you back because there are several cases of yours that we didn't even have a chance to discuss. Well, we thank you. Thank you for being a guest on Unbillable Boston, my friend. Thank Will you. you come back? Maybe. Well, I now know your uh, tricks. Um, when I said, what are you going to ask me about? Uh, you sent me an email and you listed uh, the 10 questions that you would definitely ask. Uh, perhaps the next time I come by, you'll ask at I least, asked none of you'll them. You'll right. ask yes. at least one of them. Guilty as charged. Thank you. <laughs> J.P. Franz, how is the orange line doing on your end? The Oak Grove side is a total shit show, so I've been only using buses for the past week or so, but I need to be in your neck of the woods this evening, Stony Brook, to look at an apartment. Sarah Horowitz, February 13th. The mayor of Boston has given up. Walsh, I don't know what to say to anybody anymore. Hopefully it will stop eventually. Hashtag Boss Snow. Hashtag Seven News. Braden Moriarty, February 15th. Apparently the mayor's office is actively telling plows to push snow onto the sidewalks. Last week I had to climb a six-foot snowbank and slide straight into a bus on my ass. I'm sure the elderly and disabled are doing great with this new protocol, 
Sarah Horowitz, February 17th. This is my life right now. Things are fine. Glad I don't have a car. Sarah Lynn Weintraub, February 16th. This was seriously the best Valentine's Day ever. Hashtag snuggle with a onesie instead. Hashtag I'm breaking up with the snowpocalypse. Tyler Catanella, February 14th. Another two-plus-hour morning commute today that ended in taking Uber again. I hope your parade was fucking worth the pass. Now let the evening circus begin. Sarah Horowitz, February 13th. Guys, I think Boston is done. It's six feet of snow and rising. Public transport looks like it will never recover. I think this might be the end times. I passed six unattended corpses and a man tearfully eating a dog on the way to Bye Bye Liver tonight. There were children with knives, chanting and carrying effigies of Charlie Baker and Marty Walsh through the streets. It's Armageddon. Harry Aspinwall, February 13th. And that's just great stuff. That is a, a bit that you might have already seen on YouTube put together by a group calling itself the Safety Whale Comedy Collective. And I don't know what I'm more annoyed by, the snow or people complaining about the snow. You know, I, don't, I just, I don't know. Well, let's, let's ask our, our resident commuter here, the, uh, the, the person who has the longest commute in the history of uh, Massachusetts, Sarah Worley. How's your commute been recently? Yeah, why, <laughs> why do you do it? Well, tell, give, uh, for our listening audience, give us an idea. Give us your exact address so people can stalk you. No, tell us. No, you live. Okay. It's tell not us. a secret. I okay. live in Marion, Marion Massachusetts, right. which is one click off of the Bourne and Sagamore Bridge. What, what part of Rhode Island is that in? Marion, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, very funny. Yeah, right. West Virginia. Um, yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. I leave my house, and if there's no snow and no traffic, it is one hour and ten minutes door to door. Piece of cake. So if there's no so, snow yeah. and no traffic, meaning never, is yeah. it one hour and 15 yeah. minutes? Okay. And if there's a flake of snow or a spit of rain. So how is, so it's been a nightmare the last few weeks? If I get in on, in under three hours, it is a celebration. Mm-hmm. Wow. Are you serious? Just, oh, yeah. You could be in New York City at that in three Do hours. Do you guys ever go on Route 24 northbound yes. for yes, any I reason? Have. Yeah. Okay. You might as well be on a... Speedway. You might as well be at Logan Airport. I mean, it's people drive 180 miles an hour, and then they're shocked when they have an accident. It's been oh. crazy. I, I've noticed it's that the, the highways aren't that bad in right. in the city. It's nuts, and we saw that thing uh, in the in the paper not long ago about the guy who was towing his what 45 foot yacht. Yeah, that was great. Through the that city. Was great. Yeah. <laughs> on yeah. that day, is it, I, I, I no. It was in fairness. I think it was it was a boat show thing, right? They were taking it to the boat show at the at the convention center or the World Trade Center, or whatever. Yeah, that makes it a lot was. better. It's going. Well, to the, going yeah, to the boat it was show. it was comical. I thought maybe he did it for for the publicity. If he had a for sale sign on it, it would have been uh-huh. such a perfect strategy to sell that boat because it was photographed and put in the uh, in the globe. So I know, no, it was a, it was a nice sign of the times that someone's trying to do something to look forward to the summer, and all they do is cause gridlock traffic for three hours. My my snippet of a moment uh, of um, horror 
was the other day when I was leaving the office at, um, I mean, my fault, leaving the office at rush hour. It's when most of us leave the office. But I was trying to get, so I park in the government center um, parking garage, you know, the big honking one. And I was going to pick up a friend in right here, Post Office Square. So I've got about five blocks to travel, maybe six blocks, 45 minutes. No exaggeration. No exaggeration. It was, it was, and I still can't figure out why that is. Like, why is that? Why is that? Is it because there are spots where there should be three lanes and there's only one because of the snowbanks or something? I'm here to tell you, Dave, they, <laughs> they recently appointed me to succeed Beverly Scott. So I'll, oh, I'll congratulate uh, yeah, no. yeah. Um, they've they've uh, they've shrunk down all of the city streets to uh, if there are four lanes like Congress Street can be it's two because right. of the, because of the snowbanks um, so just the, the the lanes in the city have been have been reduced but you're right there's, and then there are other days where you catch a break like on the highways because people get scared and they don't you were telling me that day you flew right in yeah and on Tuesday yeah. on eight there was a Tuesday where where I think yeah. that was the one where there was no T whatsoever. Yep. I drove in. It was great. It was like Tom Cruise and Vanilla Sky alone <laughs> in Times Square. It was wonderful. That happened to me once. I was on the Expressway 93, and for whatever reason, I I like got up to where the front of the traffic was. It was stopped, and I'm like, why is there? Why is this totally stopped? And it turns out there was a cop who had stopped traffic altogether on 93 for some reason. I don't know. Maybe it was a repair in the road or something. But point being. I was at the front of the line, and it was like him waving the flag like at the Grand Prix, and all of a sudden, it was just nothing but pavement in front of me. It was like Shangri-La. It, it doesn't happen that often, but you got to Was that one of the it. top ten moments of your life you just it was hit? Was <laughs> <laughs> it seems great. Well, I mean, I think definitely top 12, but yeah. you know what, maybe top I don't 10. know how much you guys have walked around the financial district lately, but of course, yeah. one of the problems is the sidewalks are reduced to single-lane passage. Yeah. Yep. So for those people who are counting, the Boston Marathon is two months away. So yeah. in fact, walking here tonight, um, I had a runner behind me. <laughs> oh, yeah. And as I'm walking down Milk Street, he's yelling, make a hole, make a hole. Oh, and I actually turned around and looked at him. I said, where would you like me to do that? And he stopped dead in his tracks. <laughs> he said, that is a very good point. You know what? <laughs> oh, my God. There's nowhere to go. I'm sorry. Pay your dude. lousy $35 a month and get a membership to Planet Fitness and get on a treadmill. I, I, I mean, I love the signs out there that say, danger, falling ice. <laughs> yeah. What am I supposed to do yeah, with that information? Yeah, I know. <laughs> No, it's just, should I bring an umbrella? I mean, what? No, like, yeah. When you get hit and you're lying there bleeding, you look at the side and you go, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, right. I should have known. Danger. <laughs> Falling ice. So let I me know. ask you two men yeah. this. This is a man question. Why did you use air quotes when you said men? What, what, what was that all about? Yeah. You'll find out. <laughs> um, so, true confessions. Who has gotten up on their own roof to clean it off? No. Um, I did shovel the deck in the back of my house okay. because uh, I still can't get a straight answer out of anyone whether you need to do that or not like if the deck is actually going to collapse but if it were going to collapse this would be the year it would collapse yeah. because yeah well I don't know the answer to that so you got on the roof no worse than that I was actually after my three hour commute sitting in my office and my phone rang and it was my husband I thought what an odd time for him to be calling me he should yeah. be at work he called to tell me he was on the roof and it occurred to him it would be a good idea if somebody knew about that <laughs> yeah I right. thought 
why the the 50% breadwinner is on the icy roof good time to buy extra insurance I'm glad you went right to the money Uh, uh, and I I already like I know so much more about ice dams now than I ever really wanted to know I know more about damn ice than I ever wanted to know wait actually I gotta add one more thing you know what I hate about this time of year the the footwear thing like that must be a bigger now I'm looking at Sarah's tilting her head it must be that's a more that's what I thought you were gonna say actually that's more of a female thing than a male thing like, gone are the days of the of the totes, or as they used to be known, rubbers, I guess. But now we don't call them that anymore. I, I don't even the know. The washes, where you put them over yeah. your shoes? Yeah, they slip yeah. over your shoes. I've never owned those. I've got and a pair I, in my office right now. I'm so, You do? I do? Absolutely. I'm I'm so lazy, I just look down, I, I pick the shoes for the day, and I say, well, these are going to take a beating today. <laughs> and, and, and so maybe that's why I just don't buy fancy shoes. It must be harder for you. Well, it is, Sarah. but I'd like to go back to you for a moment, David, because yes. I think you need to refine that a little bit. There was actually quite a um, an enchanting story in the Boston Globe last week involving a music professor from the Boston Conservatory who set out from his home in the Back Bay with his open overcoat and his dress shoes. And when right. a reporter stopped him and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm dressed like this out of respect for the music. Wait, I don't get it. He was That's wearing right. he was wearing a... His overcoat, yeah. unbuttoned flowing in the breeze and the blizzard and yeah. his dress shoes now i gotta tell you I, I wait can, hold I, that's all he was wearing well no i mean he had clothes on underneath oh i see that okay. was his outer, keep it clean those were right. his outer no I, okay. yeah. I, I can relate to that so i um i wear only leather bottom shoes and it's because it's something my grandfather taught me that when a man wears a suit he wears leather bottom shoes so mm-hmm. i do that which is why i have the Galoshes, rubbers, whatever you want to call them. This is a fantasy. I think we show. want to call them galoshes. I okay. think that's what I'm going to yes. go with. But <laughs> <laughs> at, uh, at at this point in the year, it becomes very, very difficult because you, you could ruin a pair in in a, in a in a week doing it that way. That's why you got to buy cheap shoes online, like I do. Oh God, I just gave my secret away. At a distance, you can't tell. They look just like your shoes. I uh, no, no, they don't. Yeah, All sorry. right, yeah. yeah, Mr. Fashion. I, w- I would like to. Um, give credit to a very fine Boston attorney, Sue Ann St. Charles, who mm-hmm. I believe is at Nixon Peabody now. Um, back in the day, she and I were both attorneys at Peabody and Arnold, and in a particularly cold episode, I think it was 1994 or five, when we were snowed in again, um, and she um, informed me that mm. women wear um, wool tights and tall boots all winter long. And I asked her, you know, how would you know such a thing? So Anne said, I am Canadian. <laughs> really? Yeah. This is what we do. So she completely shifted the um, clothing spectrum for the women of Peabody and Arnold back in the mid-90s. And everybody started wearing Every, wool, yep. wait, what wool did tights you say? Wool and tights and tall boots, which you'll notice if you look under the table, that is what I have on today. I, I'll do it later. You but may. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, um... I was going to say that set the feminist movement back, but no, I guess it just sort of went hand in hand with it. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, you're not going to, the, the single women in the office aren't going to draw much attention wearing that sort of garb, but I guess it's functional, right? You know, it is, as okay. a matter of fact. <laughs> oh, and then, then then there's the whole top coat thing. Like, do you wear, will you, will you come in wearing the top, I, might, I don't even know if I'm using the right terminology. You know what I mean? A, a wool a, overcoat, a yes. A wool overcoat. Yes, absolutely. You wear that, even if it's going to make you chillier than if you wore a ski jacket uh regrettably I, I have to admit yes i do you suck it up and you you take the the cold winds yeah, every day you t- <laughs> see i've i've given up on that uh, what i do is this is my trick 
I wear the suit, I put the ski jacket on top, and then right when I get to wherever I'm going, I remove the ski jacket and kind of hold it behind me sheepishly and ask where the coat room is. We all see it, though, behind you, Dave. Well, you it's, might. Yeah. All right. Oh, God. All right. Well, um, I think we've accomplished nothing with this discussion, but um, <laughs> we've vented a little bit. But the, and, trucks, um, the trucks have left for spring training, David. That's all that matters. I know. And I'm glad the, the media has calmed down on that because that became... Was there anything more cliched? Maybe the start of the Boston Marathon. Other than that, was there anything more cliched than the media bit? You know, the, the, every news channel. Well, it's that time of year. The Sox are packing up this spring, you know. You guys enjoy that or what? I love it. I love everything about it. All right. See, that's your problem. Yeah, sorry. All right. Well, um, we'll be back um, on Unbillable Boston with more inane chatter about New England, about snow. We might even talk about business a little bit later. Stay with us. Thank you. And that is the podcast for the week. On behalf of Max Perlman and Sarah Worley, I'm David Yaz saying thanks for listening. See you next week.